When you leave an administration or a government over matters of policy, you, you state what they are, what those matters are. I did so with the president. He was straightforward with me. I was straightforward with him. And then you owe a period of silence as the president, the secretary of state, secretary of defense carry on the duty of preserving and protecting this country. And I'm not going to sit now in what I consider to be the, the cheap seats, uh, having just left the administration and, and comment or make political assessments. Before, it was the axis of adults, right? It was Kelly, Mattis, Tillerson, and HR. They kept the president from doing all these crazy things. All those guys are completely gone. Our foreign policy is exactly the same. The president's entitled to the staff that he wants at, at any moment. If this bill is not passed, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate and the president will have hell to pay. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Last week... There were ice checkpoints on Route 89 right outside my hometown of Hanover, New Hampshire. Yes, Border Patrol checking cars at random 95 miles from any international border. And 95 miles since that's just within the purview as the crow flies of Border Patrol, which is allowed apparently to conduct searches and shake people down within 100 miles of the border. So at 95, they get that lick their chops rabidness and they get to stop cars asking Papira, like the SS. And they search the cars. This is armed men with big dogs of anyone whose looks they don't like. And yeah, you guessed it. That means New Hampshireites with... um, how do you say, New Hampshire white faces, they get waved by, and Guatemalan brown faces, another Latinx folk, get stopped, searched, stripped of belongings, hazed, and in a few cases, deported. Some of this happened during the time that Dartmouth's international students arrived on campus, a few miles from the checkpoint. Now, these guys at ICE had been harassing drivers on 89 all summer. They'd made something like 19 arrests. And at the time, some tried to say it was a coincidence that the Dartmouth students were arriving then. Hanover, it happens, is outside the 100-mile purview. In any case, terrifying people, which is what these checkpoints did, is a move that reverberates all the way through these communities. And all of us knew that Canadian journalists coming to the U.S. for short assignments had already been turned away from U.S. border states. So yeah, the racist police state has come to America's ninth colony. Today, my guest is Susan Glasser. She founded Politico and is a staff writer at The New Yorker, where she writes a weekly column on life in Trump's Washington. Susan is also a tonic both bracing and soothing whenever she talks or writes. I count on her for clarity, for seeing around corners, for this foxy wit she has, and for keeping her priorities straight. Welcome back to Trumpcast, Susan. Thank you so much for having me. One of the sort of types of people that we look to in our troubled times are people who've managed to get out of the Trump administration and maybe even turn on him and have something to say. You've been writing about ex-administration figure Jim Mattis. Yeah, he really doesn't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, That's so the big takeaway. He is just a sphinx to me. I cannot read him at all. Please help me. He's a sphinx by design in, in a sort of very calculating way. To me, it's very interesting. People have made the comparison in some sense between Jim Mattis and Bob Mueller. 
Hmm. And they're both these pillars of the establishment. They're roughly the same age. And they sort of have, in a way, this sort of very antiquated but almost romantic notion of their own integrity and also the integrity of the institutions that they've spent decades representing mm-hmm. the FBI in the case of Mueller and the justice system, uh, in the case of Mattis, decades inside the U.S. military as, as a Marine and then the last few years as the civilian defense secretary. And, um, you know, they both speak about them in almost mystical terms. And I think that's the thing about mm. Mattis. He, he offers us this romantic Gazi view that frankly doesn't really exist of this, this apolitical warrior fraternity and that he's somehow serving the interests of that by not saying anything about President Trump, even though he's out on book tour, which nobody, you know, if you really don't want to say anything, you probably don't go on book tour and appear on every single cable network over and over and over again. Yeah. But putting that aside, you know, he has this idea of uh, this sort of noble fraternity. And by the way, I do say fraternity. He's 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 still clearly very opposed to, to women in the military. Hmm. But unfortunately, it's really at odds with his willingness and desire even to criticize Barack Obama, Joe Biden, George W. Bush, uh, which he does uh, quite vociferously, both in his book and in all these appearances he's making to promote it. And he actually has been saying that he knows he's disappointing people by not slagging off the president. I mean, obviously, on cable, people have interest in the blood sport and they want to hear Mattis from on high badmouth Trump as a child or, you know, call him a fucking idiot, as Tillerson reportedly did. But he's just demurring. And that also reminds me of Mueller. Yes, that's right. It's very similar, right? So, you know, Mueller says, essentially, here's my report. You can read it. And I won't even characterize it in any way. And Mattis says, here's my book. Read it. Here's my resignation letter. If you want to know what I think Mm. about Trump. Well, if you read his resignation letter, the word Trump never even appears in it. Mm-hmm. He does refer to the president, uh, but that's it. And even then, he never it's, – it's all written in the passive voice. There's no even specific actions or decisions of the president. He calls that it's all just a sort of generic pay-in to allies and how nations without allies get into trouble. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, he's been called a giant subtweet of Trump, but mm-hmm. I think that's giving him even too much – credit. It's it's just a really interesting thing. I was at this very kind of fancy book party that David Bradley, the uh, chairman of The Atlantic magazine, had for him in his sort of mansion, Massachusetts Avenue Heights. And it was, you know, sort of every A-lister you could conceive of in Washington, Bob Woodward, hmm. Andrea Mitchell, and, you know, some of his former colleagues, by the way, from the Obama administration, the only person hmm. who was there from the Trump administration was a fellow exile. His fellow former Marine General John Kelly, Mm. uh, who Mm. held court in the corner and also has not said anything publicly about uh, what, by all reliable accounts, is is a very disdainful view Mm -hmm. of the president Mm -hmm. of the United States that he has. And, you know, so none of these folks believe that they have a duty to the American people that extends to telling them what they learned in their American taxpayer-funded service inside the Trump administration. And yet... What was so interesting was to watch Mattis in this crowd. He's trying to kind of be polished and, you know, kind of insidery about how he goes about saying essentially no comment. Mm -hmm. And he makes this joke at the very beginning of his remarks. Mm. I realize how much I'm disappointing people when I don't say, let's go torch the White House, Mm. uh, he he said. And, you know, there were sort of chuckles. Uh, and, And yet then, interestingly, he 
almost immediately proceeded to start bashing the Obama administration mm-hmm. uh, after saying how it's this longstanding tradition not to make political pronouncements. And, you know, the Obama administration is not some past historical epic generations ago. Right, right. The decisions he's criticizing are decisions that Joe Biden was very much in the middle of. Hmm. Uh, And so it has a very partisan effect because who at this moment in time is very likely to be Donald Trump's 2020 opponent, but Joe Biden. You know, the torching metaphor, I'm sorry that I'm not saying torching the White House. He's not just saying, I'm sorry, I can't be more openly critical of Trump or even I can't talk candidly about Trump. It does seem as though some of these figures who had their doubts about Trump were even more terrified of left-wing or fury among the Democrats than they were of Trump. I mean, the peril that he poses to national security. It's almost as though there's a little bit of the, um, if I can, David Brooks, Brett Stevens thing, as though like they feel like they've been trolled by people who want to burn everything down. <laughs> and they're much more afraid that Antifa or liberal Twitter is coming for them than they are that Trump, by, say, sudden, precipitously withdrawing from Syria or doing the things that exactly the opposite of what Mattis recommended in his farewell letter. It is interesting that that's what rankles with him. Although here's the here's the thing I have to say like so he has a very specific sort of grievance with the Obama administration with Obama mm. who pushed him out of CENTCOM early yep. because they viewed him as this incredible Iran hawk and just out of line mm-hmm. with the administration. Um, I actually think that Mattis probably agrees with much more of the critique of Trump and his behavior and his policies than some of the Republicans that you're talking about. Hmm. I I just spent a lot of time, months really, working on this big profile of Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State for The New Yorker. And I think Pompeo and many of the people in his circle of Republicans are exactly what you're talking about. Hmm. I think they're the kind who've signed up for Trump and Trumpism by, and justifying it because the, the bigger threat uh, in their view are, are Democrats and their mm. worldview. I think Mattis has a particular animus toward mm-hmm. uh, the Obama administration, but actually is probably more a subscriber to a sort of centrist, both center-left, center-right worldview. Interesting. You know? Okay, good to know. Like, for example, at this book party, I didn't put it in the piece, but um, he kind of, in this subtweeting vein, he won't say anything critical of Trump, but he volunteers, you know, I'd like to say, I don't believe that America is a racist nation. I don't mm-hmm. believe that it's a misogynist nation. I know it's hard, but I believe that we've always managed to go forward as a country, not backward. And I think even right now, we're going to find a way to go forward. You will never hear that from mm. the Pompeos of the world. Yeah. You know, he, he Mattis wanted that audience. He knew they were pissed at him, but he also wanted them to know, like, essentially, I'm one of you, right? Yeah. I'm not racist. I'm not misogynist. I don't condone this. People who want to torch the White House after they leave and after they were in a position, whether with the 25th Amendment or something else, to actually remove the president um, and didn't do it, it's it would be for him to come out guns blazing would be would also subject him to criticism that it was too little too late. So he's in a tough position. And we've seen this with lots of people. I mean, Rex Tillerson more or less disappeared. My current obsession is with Rod Rosenstein, who in a way like Jim Mattis, uh, recently linked to a letter to justify the IG's report on Comey, a letter he'd written about Comey, about Comey's behavior in 2017, 
saying, you know, he thought he, Comey violated protocols. But the, the interesting thing about the letter, I don't know if you got a chance to click on it, but the letter to Chuck Grassley, it spends six paragraphs talking about literally Filegate, Travelgate, the death of Vince Foster, <laughs> yeah. Hillary Clinton, everything but Comet Pizza. He's really riled up on bygone matters or shadowboxing still with Hillary Clinton when Rome seems to be burning. <laughs> well, that's right. And that, of course, is the, the real thing that journalists and, and others are pointing out with some of these folks is it's either an actual national and international crisis or it's not. Either you believe yeah. that Trump is some kind of you know unique threat to the order or essentially you're saying he's just another president. Yeah. Uh, maybe a, you know, extreme one in some ways, but we can handle him with normal rules. Yeah. It seems to me that Bob Mueller and Jim Mattis are saying regular order must apply here. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the critics are saying, no, no. A, he uses regular order against the institutions themselves, and B, uh, he's a unique kind of a threat. So it, it actually does go to your assessment of the nature of what is the Trump problem we're dealing with. It's funny because in the Rosenstein thing, and I'm sorry, I've just been single-mindedly fixated on him. (laughs) He keeps asserting, you know, in an effort to maybe subtweet and and justify his decision to stand behind Bill Barr's, you know, declination to indict Trump. He keeps saying kind of some versions of we must always follow the rules. There are no exceptional circumstances that justify violating the rules. And he seems to have settled on and possibly Mueller seems to have have settled on. Certainly, I don't know, Barr seems more activist obstructionist. Uh, Rosenstein and Mueller seem a little bit passive about just like, I'm going to stick to the rules. That's all I've learned. And, you know, and there's something wrong with Comey because he took a small step outside of the rules because he saw extraordinary circumstances. There doesn't seem to be any room in the Mueller, Rosenstein, and maybe Mattis worldview for some kind of conscientious objection or even on a minor scale, violations of protocol. We're not talking about clobbering Trump before he pulls out the troops or whatever. You know, something that might have been seen as a kind of heroism in in old days. We're talking about like, you know, you're not really supposed to show this memo to the press, but then I did and that wasn't quite in protocol. Comey actually thought that we had a dangerous president obstructing justice, which is what most people now think. Well, that's right. I mean, look, so the Comey thing is even a different situation than this current book tour by yeah. Jim Mattis, after all, right? Yeah. Like we're not even in the realm of what's legal and what's not legal. Uh, and a book tour is a completely optional thing. Yeah. Jim Mattis, actually, there's a long tradition, uh, of course, in American politics of people who quit administrations mm-hmm. and, you know, over policy disagreements, over personality disagreements. Uh, this is not exactly a new situation in American politics. And, you know, by cloaking himself in this incredible sort of sanctimonious uh, argument about why he is not going to say anything, uh, you know, he's just set up, I think, a, an almost impossible standard for himself to meet because, A, um, it's a ridiculous statement, the idea that a former defense secretary doesn't speak out. Well, the very last Republican-appointed secretary of defense wrote a scathing memoir right in the middle of mm-hmm. Obama's second term. This is Bob Gates. Mm. And he felt no compunction whatsoever. I, I should note mostly a career civil servant who spent most of decades inside the CIA before leaving government, running a university, and coming back as Secretary of Defense, Bob Gates trashed 
uh, colleagues in the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. And what did he call his book? He called it duty. Uh, Now Jim Mattis says he has a duty not to Hmm. trash his colleagues in the Trump administration, but is happy to do so with others. It's almost an unsustainable position. Now, my other obsession, clearly, aside from Rod Rosenstein, is Anthony Scaramucci. And Ben, I told you before we got on, he spent last night sending me lots of emails telling me how disgusting I am. And it was very Trump-bite. You know, it was very, like, Trump would do. You know, just it, just tweet a lot of things if you're Jim Comey or whoever, <laughs> or Scaramucci himself, about, you know, what a liar and what a bug and scum you are. And... I pretend it doesn't rattle me and that I have gotten trolled forever and I'll continue to get trolled. But on some level, it does. And it just makes me think, it's not my job to bring Scaramucci in line. It's such a headache and I can't handle this. And I think that we underestimated our peril, the fear even of powerful ex-Marines Jim Mattis, their fear of being humiliated in public space by Trump. I mean, we know what happens when Omarosa, when Scaramucci, when Comey, see to, I, when Michael just, Cohen. Like, interject, yeah. though? Like, yeah. I understand what you're saying, and I, I've puzzled over this as well many, many times. I, I, I think for someone like Jim Mattis, the humiliation and the insult is to be compared to people like Anthony Scaramucci and Omarosa. Let's yeah. be honest. Okay? This yeah. man is the best this country has to offer. Yeah. Okay? You know, he is not like Anthony Scaramucci. Why are we talking about him in the same sentence? <laughs> because of the circus that yeah. this country and its government has become. It is insulting to Jim Mattis. And I understand why it's happening. But we are living in a world of Trump's creation in which the diminution hmm. of individuals and institutions is so complete that jokers like reality TV show mm-hmm. people that he hired and gave jobs they weren't qualified for in the administration for a week uh, are being talked about as the mm-hmm. same tone as people who spent four decades of their lives serving this country, who went to war in Afghanistan and Iraq, who who led thousands and thousands of troops into mortal danger and out, uh, mm-hmm. who made serious decisions about the geopolitical uh, strategy of this country. Yeah. I don't want to talk about Anthony Scaramucci. I want to talk about that. You know, yeah. and it's not it's not your fault, but you no. know, it just it's so that's what he's responding to, I think. The reason to compare them is just the way that they've taken such different tacks to yeah. the it's more like they're alike, not on their C V, but they're alike in that they were caught in the same tornado. Yeah, except that they weren't. I mean, yes, you know, that's right. the other thing. Right, that's okay, true. Okay, Scaramucci lived in Donald Trump's fantasy land media world. Yeah, for two and minutes. Part of the issue is that Jim Mattis did not. Right. Yeah. So he lived in the Pentagon and he avoided the White House wherever possible. That's probably why he managed to stay for so long in this office, although he disagreed with the president on such core issues of principle. Right. You know, so he's leading, you know, the largest military in the world. Mm-hmm. OK. Yeah. The United States is responsible single handedly. I was just looking at these numbers the other day for 40 percent of the world's military spending. OK. <laughs> you know, yeah. we we're talking about nuclear modernization. We're not talking about Scaramucci's Twitter feed. No, we're not. Trump's Twitter but here's feed. the weird thing. Okay, I think I've mentioned this on the show before. I saw Christian Amanpour, who I know also has had a run at Mattis, um, interview Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Uh, like it was her first public interview at a sort of women's event soon after the election, and she said something like, "I'm part of the resistance now." She took responsibility for losing and and um, was very gracious. And then she, I think, um, Amanpour talked to her about something they both wanted to talk about, which was North Korea. And and Hillary Clinton started talking about plutonium and uranium reserves and the tunnels and the thing. And I was just like flooded hmm. with relief. 
I just wanted to hear people <laughs> yes, talk yes. about North Korea without yeah. Dennis Rodman present, you know, without <laughs> yes. someone in a pot coin T-shirt at the center. And I think one of the problems for Mattis is just that the streams crossed because, yes. you know, he crossed into North Korea, as Trump is reminding us. And what does Jim Mattis do with that moment? It was like, you know, an episode of The Bachelor goes to North Korea or something. And yet it seemed to have geopolitical consequences. And that must have just, I mean, I'm not saying that means Jim Mattis waded into this other territory. I just mean that's part of the cognitive dissonance for some of these outgoing figures of great accomplishment like him and Mueller. Absolutely. I think that's a really important insight. Uh, remember Rex Tillerson, who who really bonded, interestingly, with Mattis. They didn't hmm. know each other before, but those two had a really strong alliance. So you had Mattis and Tillerson, both these sort of like voices from a different universe and also a different era. And Tillerson came in and he was like asked all the time about what is your reaction to this or that Trump yeah. tweet. And he would just say, I don't know anything about it. I don't even follow the president's tweets. And then he became, of course, the first secretary of state ever fired via Twitter. The joke is both on him, but it made him even less equipped to deal with this sort of circus-like atmosphere uh, that even our most serious national securities issues have, have devolved into. And so, yeah. you know, it's hard. So I'm saying, like, it's like I understand why we're talking about Scaramucci and Mattis yeah. in the same sentence. But yet it's also like, of course, I think that's exactly why he's so deeply uncomfortable. And I'm kind of missing the this opportunity as he goes out in public. Exactly. How do you think he sees the precedent set by people that didn't join the administration? And I'm thinking of uh, James Clapper and John Brennan, who are they're much more his style of guy. You know, well, that's fascinating. The Clapper is actually a, fa- a really interesting case study. And I don't know enough about the internal politics yeah. as, of the Obama administration. So I have no idea, you know, if they worked well together or not uh, in the administration. Uh, Clapper was the head of national intelligence and Mattis was the head of CENTCOM. Mm-hmm. Now, Clapper was famously close-mouthed during his previous yes. government service, right? Like the only existing profile of him <laughs> before the Trump era. And I know because I interviewed Clapper early on in the in the Trump administration when he was just becoming a public critic of the president. Yeah. And it, there was literally this one profile of him uh, by our mutual friend Garrett Graff yeah. in which it was all about how he just would never say anything. <laughs> <laughs> and hated yeah. reporters and hated the media. And now he's become this like kind of super public critic of the president. I think that, you know, at least the Mattis of today claims that, that that's the wrong approach. And, hmm. he, you know, at this book party that I went to here in Washington with Mattis, it was fascinating because two of his very old Marine general friends were there, fellow four-star generals. John Kelly, who I mentioned, the Mm -hmm. former White House chief of staff, fired as well by Trump and also not very forthcoming publicly. And then John Allen, who took Mm. a really different course. He's now the head of the Brookings Institution here in Washington. Uh, But in 2016, he decided that the threat from Trump was so serious that he would break with the military's tradition of... um, Reserve, and he endorsed uh, Hillary Clinton at uh, the Democratic convention at the same time that Michael Flynn, hmm. the now famous Michael Flynn, endorsed yeah. Trump at the Republican convention. And I don't know if Mattis saw Allen in the room or it just was on his mind, but he was very defensive, obviously, uh, in front of this crowd. And at the end of his remarks, he sort of unprompted actually attacked John Allen 
by name uh, along hmm. with Flint. And he said, well, you know, they're my friends, but what they did was wrong. And uh, I think it was a terrible thing for our country hmm. uh, and a violation, essentially, of our military code. And I, I will never do that. Eesh. Yikes. John Allen, by the way, was not happy about that, and he left quite soon thereafter. I had Clapper on the show, and he had one of the most elegant, restrained, but piercing kind of criticisms of the president as a national security danger that anyone has ever done. And certainly, like, certainly no journalist has been able to pull it off. I mean, he can write. He's just a really good thinker. Yeah, that was my impression as well when I interviewed him. So there's this other thing, and now I want to get into Trump in August. I don't know if you felt this way when you saw Mueller, uh, Susan, when he gave his presentation to Congress, but I suddenly thought... We've been talking, analyzing all these players as if they're 45 and at the height of their mental powers and that they're making decisions that are just keen and sharp and morally engaged and that they've managed somehow to keep up with what like Guccifer 2.0, how his hacks work. You know, they have galaxy brains and they're masterful and they understand strategy and everything from Cambridge Analytica to backstabbing in the Senate and They're just super powerful Churchills, all of them. And then we saw that Mueller, and it was heartbreaking, but also like there was some tenderness in it, is mortal and maybe has some cognitive issues like President Clinton does, like many other, you know, men his age or approaching his age, like all of our fathers and grandfathers. And the same seems to me a little bit true of Mattis, that just like the mildness I don't know. It just seems like he might be thinking this is no country for old men right now. Like this is just too traumatic to get into the ring. It's not only distasteful and beneath me and Scaramucci, but it's also like it's just a lot for a big grandpa brain. I mean, you know, a grandpa brain. And also we keep saying, you know, and Garrett will say too, Mueller's a Marine. Mattis is a Marine. Yeah, they were Marine a long time ago. I used to play field hockey. You know, I was good. (laughs) Exactly. I'm a star. uh, I'm a varsity tennis player. (laughs) Exactly. Everyone likes to identify with when they were 18 or 25 or even (laughs) 40. But anyway, so we see that. And the other sort of spectacle, which has consequences for our country, is the decline we see in Trump. Is it worth talking about? He had such a weird August, as you beautifully wrote about. <laughs> yeah, we're a gerontocracy, right? And it's not just yes. Trump. We got Trump. We got Joe Biden running for the Democrats. Right. We've got Mattis. We've got Mueller. We've got Tillerson. Uh, you know, it used to be uh, it was other countries. Uh, you know, it was the Politburo. It was uh, uh, the Chinese mysterious leadership. Now it's uh America and its old dudes and it's uh, China who has an aggressive and ambitious middle-aged guy running the show. Yes, right. That's kind of amazing. So let's talk about Scaramucci also is obsessed with what he sees as Trump's, you know, mental illness, decline, whatever it is. Is this worth talking about, especially after this very strange August where between typos, his usual lashing out at I guess the um, Deborah Messing stuff made it into September. But, you know, he attacked Omarosa. Of course, he attacked crooked cop James Comey. Like, we can't normalize this. He's just like a drunk at a bar. What do you think? Well, look, it's very interesting. I actually was skeptical. Interestingly enough, I came into, I thought I would do a kind of look at what August added up to. And I would go back through Trump's kind of public commentary, of which there is a lot, and, you know, not the tweets, the the constant 
talking to the press as he gets on and off his helicopter. In August, I was, you know, doing this big, long print New Yorker profile of Pompeo. It was August. I thought it'd be an interesting exercise to look back. And, you know, I actually was skeptical. I thought, well, Trump is just Trump, and it's being overblown, this sort of theory of decline, and he's always said nutty things, and he's always been confrontational and trafficked in insults. And yet I came away thinking, wow, we have been the boiled frog here more than we realize. Hmm. Uh, And that, you know, it's, it's, we've been overwhelmed by the ratcheting up of the outrage machine by the president that we actually have not realized how much there is a difference uh, both in volume mm-hmm. and tone to what the president is doing. And I, 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 at the last minute, I said, well, let me look at August of two years ago, because we all remember that as a yes. particularly nutty early month yes. in the administration. And that was fire and fury. And that was Charlottesville and, uh, you know, a kind of realization that this presidency you know, wasn't being managed by the adults in the room like Jim Mattis. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that Trump had made fewer than half as many tweets in August of 2017. Mm. Uh, he was now in August of this year, not only just on this device all the time uh, and clearly more addicted to it, but much more confrontational in his use of it, angrier, more vituperative, uh, more outrageous. For example, the number of direct insults of uh, a particular person. So I'm not talking about insulting the fake news. I'm not talking about insulting the Democrats, but of particular individuals. Um, way up. It made big news when he did so 14 times mm-hmm. uh, back in August of 2017. Is 52 times in August of 2019 with a much, much longer list of enemies perceived and real. And again, this is the President of the United States sitting in the Oval Office doing this. I This is not normal, folks. Yeah. Uh, that I knew that Trump has become obsessed in recent months with the Fed and its chairman that he himself appointed, mm-hmm. Jay Powell. Uh, and he's really desperately concerned that Powell's going to raise interest rates and trigger uh, uh, a recession of some kind mm-hmm. that would undermine Trump's ability to get reelected. But when you actually look and do the numbers and you realize that the president of the United States is attacking the chairman of the Fed, perhaps the most powerful single individual uh, in the world economy outside of the leaders of the United mm. States and China, mm-hmm. again and again in the most base and, frankly, vile personal terms. Yeah. Yeah. You know, insulting the intelligence of this man. I mean, it's just it's it's actually crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it? It's it is. I mean, I I, I mean, I, you know, the Greenland thing. Let's, we didn't even talk about oh, that. I mean, you God. know, people have like given up on that when we were and with the Messiah <laughs> thing. We were the, in I'm August, king the of the Jews. Yes. We were in August. You know, we were away in, in Massachusetts at my parents house. And one night in the middle of all this, we had a friend over of my parents and she was you know in true vacation mode as opposed to us journalists who are in semi-vacation right. mode right and it was the night that Trump had canceled his visit to Denmark because he was mad at them for making fun of his demand that he wanted to purchase Greenland yeah and so everyone at dinner is just talking about Trump canceling this trip to Denmark and finally after about you know five or ten minutes this woman interrupts and she's like wait can, can you guys back up here? <laughs> Trump wants to buy Greenland? He's, right. And I just thought that was such a, like, reality check moment. Like, people, this is pretty nutty. Yes. 
I still think Adam Schiff's this is not okay, that's not okay speech is one of the best documents of our time. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's like, shouldn't we hold him to a slightly higher standard than just open felonies that he can be indicted for now? You know, it's one after another. That's not okay. That's not just ask yourself, ask your friend, is it okay? To try to buy Greenland, Denmark says no, and so you basically say, fuck Denmark on Twitter. I mean, no, it's not okay. But what do we do about that? Well, but here's the thing. I mean, you and I can barely remember Adam Schiff's Mm -hmm. speech. Do you really think that other people can? I mean, Trump has succeeded because we can't even remember. Because the moral clarity of some of the critiques of him are lost in a flood of daily this and also because we are such a partisan and divided country and to me that's you know the thing that that I I do keep coming back to Mm -hmm. is that there's such an impulse to play this as team sports and because of that you have not only this incredible enduring uh, support for Trump uh, among self-identified Republicans Mm -hmm. but uh, the desire to create an ideology and to turn it into an, uh, a, a principled policy struggle wherever possible as a way of uh, both distracting the conversation from all the things you and I are talking about that have to do essentially with the president's outlier character and behavior in the job. Mm-hmm. And then the insistence upon that as a way, in effect, of justifying their own support for it. And, mm-hmm. and that has proved to be actually a winning formula. It works. Yes, it does. That was a perfect analysis. I got to leave it at that. Susan, it's so good to have you here and also so good to see you in The New Yorker. Thanks again. Oh, it's terrific to be with you. That's it for today's show. What did you think? Write some thoughtful, reflective things to us on the internet. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And if you're still here, why not just take a minute to go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus and become a Slate Plus member. There's no day like today and you'll feel great about yourself. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.